But what a beautiful name Jesus is. You delight in redeeming people. You delight in using broken vessels to deflect your sovereignty and your power. So, Lord, I pray today that you would speak beyond the voice of a mere, weak, mortal man. But, Lord, that you would flex your power and your greatness through speaking through a mere broken man. Lord, I pray that you would draw men, women, and children to yourself. That we would see the glory of your majesty. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hold it before you sit down. Hold up. Could you stand back up real quick? Go in and grab your Bibles and open it up to Matthew chapter 8. I just ruined all these songs and mixed them all up. Sorry about that. <clears throat> um, Matthew chapter 8, it'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. We have a large chunk today, so it is going to be like drinking out of a fire hydrant. So just pair, prepare yourself for that. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17 say this. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the, with, say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who follow him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table, recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go and let it be done for you as you have believed. And the centurion was healed at that very moment. Verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Word of God for the people of God. You can be seated. All right, so, whoo, that's a chunk right there, boy. Um, last week, we wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount. Tyler Lee did a phenomenal job doing that. Um, so thank you for blessing us um, by wrapping that up. Um, so today we enter into a new section in the book of Matthew. Chapters 8 and 9 come together as one piece. And the best way to think about these two chapters is to look at it as a two-part authority of Christ, okay? And so if you remember back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says this, Jesus was going all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. I think this is a good summary statement of Christ's ministry. We see both his ministry being carried out in word and in deed. 
And so coming out of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, where we've been the past several weeks looking at these really practical uh, teachings of Christ of how a Christian life should be best lived, we saw him teaching as one who had authority, if you remember that from last week. They were astonished, it says in uh, verses 28 and 29, that he spoke with someone as someone who had authority. And so this week... Matthew chapter 8 is going to show us the works of Jesus. So I, the best way to put it is this. And so Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we saw the words of Christ and his authority through his words. And through chapters 8 and 9, we're going to see the authority through the works of Christ. And so he, we're going to see that same authority displayed in his works as he rules over sickness, nature, death, and disease, and demons. So... Point of illustration for this morning. How many of you guys have ever seen those pictures hanging up in either a doctor's office or maybe you have one in your house? Three separate portraits that make up one big picture. So when I've seen this, these pictures, I've seen them on more than one occasion, they've all been of a tree. I guess trees just work the best for this, this type thing. So in the middle you have like the trunk of the tree coming up and then that's that picture. You kind of see the branches coming out of it. And then in the other two, you see the branches extend out onto the other two portraits. But they all come together and they form one big pretty tree. Y'all, have y'all ever seen anything like that? Anybody? Y'all are like, you're on crack. You don't know what you're talking about. All right, so anyways, I should have put a picture up here so you could saw what I'm talking about. Um, but I didn't, so there's that. So anyways, in this text, we're going to look at three separate portraits. I say all that to say this. We're going to see three separate portraits. And each portrait is going to be a visible tangible picture of grace and what it means to look to live it and to extend it but we're going to see is that each one of these portraits comes together as one big masterpiece and we see grace manifested in a person and so that kind of leads us and segues us into our first portrait look with me in verses one through four and this is what the first thing I think we see in these portraits of grace Grace reaches out and restores the deplorable even when the cost is high. Verses 1 through 4 says this. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds, keep that in mind, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So leprosy in ancient Israel was the most dreaded disease that you could possibly get. Kind of like modern day HIV or AIDS, okay? Just kind of give you a picture of what I'm talking about. It's a pretty dreaded disease. It's very contagious. It's a very contagious skin disease and it only affects the skin's look, its smell, or its color, but it also slowly destroys the nervous system. This is fascinating. It slowly deteriorates the nervous system. And so with that comes we lose the sense of pain in our bodies as someone who has leprosy. And in this time, and I mentioned this in the first service, I probably should have looked this up. In this time, there was no leprosy. I don't know if there's a cure now. If somebody could afterwards I would think that's pretty cool if you could tell me so anyways but at this time there was no cure for leprosy and so therefore lepers lepers generally lost the tips of their fingers they would lose the tips of their toes they would easily break limbs why because they couldn't feel the heat of a flame they couldn't feel the weight of an object if they were to drop something on their foot they couldn't feel the sharpness of a blade it's pretty scary disease if you think about it but for a Jew 
leprosy was a totally different level of bad. So this disease brought separateness with it, okay? It caused a chasm between the infected and society. If, if you remember back, um, you can go read this for yourself later. Leviticus 13 describes lepers as this way. Lepers had to wear torn clothing. They wore their hair frazzled and unkempt. They had to cover their mouths. They had to walk around when they were amongst people. They had to yell, unclean, unclean. So that they wouldn't, uh, it, it would, in order to prevent the spreading of the disease to others. And to go farther than that, not only did they have to do all of that, Their uncleanliness meant they couldn't reside within the community of Israel. They were banished to leper colonies. You can go read about this in Numbers chapter 5. And they were barred from temple worship. They were barred from this. And so, with knowing all this about the cultural and societal separateness that came with leprosy, this adds huge weight to what happens in verse 2. This leper came to him, being Christ, a Jew, and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This man's condition was deplorable. It was disgusting. Yet his faith is praiseworthy. So this leper somehow, picture with me, this leper somehow fights his way through these crowds. Remember it says a great crowd was with Jesus at this time. These Jews who knew the Levitical laws, who knew what Numbers says about lepers. Keep that in mind. This leper fights his way, unclean, unclean. And he makes his way up to Jesus and he approaches him. And he approaches him not face to face, but face to foot. Do you see the humility playing out? He approaches him in humility. I'm not worthy. I'm nasty, Jesus. He addresses him as Lord. Another phenomenal thing to note there. He doesn't call him teacher. He doesn't call him rabbi. He doesn't even call him by his name. He replies, Lord, showing that he believes, going back, that he is one who can exercise his authority over and over and his power over disease and so also notice this notice he doesn't say lord if you can make me clean what does he say lord if you will will you make me clean do you see his 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 trust in the authority of god's power here my voice just cracked like an eight-year-old that was awesome haven't had that happen in a while um it's it's more of a statement instead of a question In a way, he's saying, Jesus, I recognize that you have the power to make me clean. So will you do it? Do you see his faith playing out? Do you see this this faith taking place? He has confidence in Jesus. You can heal me. But he has humility before him. Only if you will. This is a lot what faith looks like, right? We have Radical trust in the sovereignty of God. I know you can do this. I know you have the power to do this. Yet we approach him how? In a broken poverty of spirit. Lord, I have nothing to offer. I can't do anything about this situation. But I know you can, if you will. Just like this leper did. This man, this leper could do nothing to cleanse himself. So what happens here? How does Jesus respond? What does he do? 
There's a lot riding on this moment. The crowds are watching him. Jesus has just taught all of this stuff. It's teaching with one who has authority. What is this, what is this guy who has all this authority going to do in this moment? He know, they know the, the uh, laws of leprosy. What's he going to do? How is Jesus going to respond here? With the crowds watching him, I'm, I'm Jesus. I'm the pure one. He's unclean. What does he do? This is what he doesn't say. He does not say, hold up, wait a second. Why, why are you kneeling before me? Why are, you, why are you calling me Lord? You have leprosy and that's disgusting. He doesn't say that, man. Matter of fact, he doesn't say anything at first. What does he do in this moment? Huge moment of flipping culture. Jesus looks at him and does something absolutely remarkable. He reaches out and he touches him. Do you see the love? Do you see the compassion? Do you see the scandalous grace playing out right now? This is huge. When society says you can't be seen with that person or you can't be seen with these people, the gospel says, hey, watch this. This is big. How long was this guy a leper? We don't know. Was he a leper for a year, five years, ten years, forty years? It doesn't say. We, we have no idea. But just put, I, want to put, I want you to put yourself in this man's shoes. Just imagine not being touched by someone just for a month. For, let's say 30 days. Not, not, a, not a high five, not a handshake, not a hug, not a pat on the back for 30 days. Just imagine that. And Jesus reaches out and he touches him. It's fascinating. And according, this is huge. According to Leviticus chapter 5 verse 3, in this moment when Jesus reaches out and touches this unclean man, according to Leviticus chapter 5 verse verse 3, in that second, Jesus would become unclean the second he touches that leper. But in this moment, by the means of Christ's healing touch, Jesus transcends the law without abolishing it. That's a big deal, man. Remember, Christ goes on to say, I didn't come to abolish the law. He's not here to abolish the law. But in this moment, he transcends that bad boy. And he touches him. And I love, love, love what Ligon Duncan said. I should have put this up there. I'll say it two times if you want to write it down. Ligon Duncan says this. Jesus reaches out and touches defilement. He doesn't become unclean. You become clean. That's good, man. That's good stuff. Jesus reaches out and touches defilement. And in that moment, he doesn't become unclean. But that leper, he becomes white as snow. That's a big deal. That's a huge deal. And Jesus, this is a a tangible picture of what's to come on the cross. And this picture of grace. Jesus taking on all our infirmities as we become white as snow. You see this, Jesus touches him like a mom's tender touch on her sick kid. And then he commands this leper's body to be clean. And guess what? That leprosy pieces out just like that. What does that look like? I have no idea, but I love to see it. Like, does his tips of his fingers grow back in that moment? Does he grow toes back? Like, does like contorted body like get restored? I don't know, but that would be awesome to see. I'm just saying. That's a side note. That was free. Anyways, um, so this is Christ. This is a picture of Christ, right? In, in, in the word, we, we, and we sing about this in songs, Jesus as the lion and the lamb, right? I think it's like the Carrie Job song that mentions that or something. Anyway, the lion and the lamb. I think here we see a beautiful picture of that playing out. We have the tender compassion 
of him reaching out the tender compassion of the lamb. And when he takes hold of this man, we see the roaring authority, power of the lion be clean and it's gone. You see that? Jesus did for this man what no one else could do for him. Not himself and no outsider. And interesting, Jesus then goes on after this huge miracle, the first miracle we've seen play out in Matthew. Jesus says to him, see that you say nothing about this to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus didn't want everybody flocking to him for a miracle and miss the whole point of his ministry. I think that's something for us. I think there's a huge point for us there. Jesus isn't a cosmic band-aid cure. We shouldn't flock to Christ just to get patched up like a band-aid. He is the ultimate cure. He wants to restore. So that's the first thing I think we see in this first portrait. The next portrait of grace, I think we see this. Grace accepts man not based upon his ethnicity or his accolades, but by the object of his faith. Verses 5 through 13, look with me in the first part of it. And when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, being Jesus, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So I see no less than seven shocking things in this portrait here. So I want you to look at these with me. The first thing I think we see is this. We see a centurion come to Jesus. What's the big deal about that? If you're a centurion, Jews are not a fan of you. Not in the least bit. Okay? Why? Because A, you're a Gentile. You're not a part of the people of God. You're not a Jew. And B, you're a high official in the Roman military. Okay? What does that mean? They were oppressing the people of God in this moment, okay? The Romans had come in, they were oppressing the people of God, and so here's this deal, the centurion approaching a Jew, being Jesus, and he was of the wrong ethnicity, and he was on the wrong team. So I think that's the first thing we can see. Number two, this centurion who we've already established is in the Roman military. If y'all remember back in history, this dude who was over Rome was this guy named Caesar. If you go and look back at history, Caesar was an egomaniac. He was a psycho, like legit psycho. Just, you need to go read some stuff on Caesar. Not only did you work for Caesar, you worshipped Caesar. He was your Lord. He was your God. But what happens? What does this Roman centurion do in this moment? He calls Jesus Lord twice. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Believers call Jesus Lord. Non-believers call him teacher and rabbi. Number three, the centurion makes a plea on behalf of his servant. This is huge. This is most likely one of his household slaves. So what makes it strange is that in the Greco-Roman world, in this time period, a slave owner wouldn't care more for his slave than he would an animal. It's not like, who cares? It's just a slave. He's paralyzed. Who cares? But this soldier 
has care and compassion for him. What's going on in the heart of this soldier? Number four. Jesus responds to this centurion's request by saying he will see, he will heal the servant. Notice, do you notice how Jesus doesn't say, I'll need to come look at him first? Like Jesus isn't near this slave. Like he's not by him. He doesn't say, I need to come check him out to see if I can do it. What does he say? I'll come and heal him. You see him flexing his authority and his power, man. This is big. And it's also shocking, and it shocks the centurion that Jesus is willing to enter his home. Remember, I mean, this was a cultural no-no. Jews don't enter the homes of Gentiles. This would be like pre-segregation, a white guy going and sitting at the back of a bus, or a white guy going from and drinking from a black-only water fountain. Do you see the magnitude of what's happening here? And this is what I love about Christ. He's flipping culture despite the ethnic norms and despite the cultural upbringings of those who are watching him. And number five, this Gentile doesn't want Jesus to come in his home. What's the big deal about that? The centurion, he doesn't see that himself as worthy to have Christ come under his roof. Jesus is going to go on in the next passage next week our text next week Jesus will go on to say the son of man has no place to lay his head so what's the big deal about this homeless Jew entering his house why does does he even feel like he's worthy to have him keep in mind this guy's do you see the humility here this guy's a gentile he's a high-ranking military official in the world's greatest military he has he has slaves so he has money he's a free Roman citizen Yet he thinks Jesus is so worthy, it would be unthinkable for him to come into his home. He sees Christ as so much of royalty that he's not, he he couldn't even fathom it. Do you see how his disposition towards Christ shows of an inward transformation that's happened in his heart? You see this playing out. Our next, number six, our next shocking thing that happens. I want to read right here in verses 8 through 10. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to to another, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. That's a big word right there. And he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. When Jesus heard this centurion's reply, he marveled at him. This is fascinating. This is only one of two times in the New Testament that the Greek word thalmazo, I probably just butchered that, but whatever. Thalmazo is used in respect to Jesus. It means to wonder at or to marvel at. And this word is used in the, okay, this is what's cool. This word, the only other time it's used this word thalmazo is used when uh, the crowd see Jesus work a miracle and they're like astonished. So just picture with me, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He was stank dead, okay? And he rose them up out of that bad boy. And like, could you imagine what your reaction would be? Like, oh my gosh, thalmazo, to marvel, to wonder at. And in this moment, Jesus looks at this Gentile's faith and he is thalmazo. He marvels at it. Do you see that? Jesus is marveled. 
which leads to Jesus' jaw-dropping statement. Number seven, the shocking thing that we see. He went on to make a statement about the bigger picture of what's going on here, the presence of faith in a Gentile rather than an Israelite. Look with me in verses 11 and 12. It says this, And I tell you, many will come from the east and and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, while sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I can almost picture everyone around Jesus, including his disciples, and the crowd mainly made up, or if not all made up of Jews, just going like, like, oh my gosh. The huge surprise here, especially to the Jews of Christ's day, is who is in and who's out, Jesus? Who's going to be in this kingdom that you keep talking about? Who's in and who's out? And Jesus says that even the super-religious Jewish Pharisee, even the one that's got the verses memorized, who has the knowledge, who knows the patriarchal church history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who, who grew up in temple worship, If they don't bow their knee to Christ's lordship, guess what? They're out. Do you see the shocking nature of this? And not only that, but he takes it a whole nother level. And he says, that Gentile guy, that nasty outcast, that military man who's working for the wrong team because of his childlike faith, he's in. And he has a seat at the table in the kingdom of God. Scandalous grace. Scandalous grace. And this is a foreshadowing of the opening up of the kingdom of God to the Gentiles that we're going to see play out in Acts and in the early church, which led to all of us gathering in 2019 in a gymnasium. This is big, man. Jesus wasn't concerned with the object of this man's faith. I mean, Jesus was concerned with the object of this man's faith. He wasn't concerned with his ethnicity. I don't care that you're a Gentile. I don't care that you're an outsider. I don't care you're one of those filthy Gentile dogs. I don't care about your accolades. I don't care that you pull over a a, a hundred Roman military men. I don't care. But what I do care about is your object of your faith, which is in me. That goes to show us that faith is not an inherited right. It is a gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2. Portrait number 2. So here's portrait number 3. I think we can see this in that. Verse 14 through 16. Grace doesn't leave you unchanged. It says this. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and, he, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. So in this final portrait, we have Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. So why is Matthew, what is Matthew getting at here in this small little miracle about a fever? Like, why even mention this small miracle? Was he reminding Roman Catholics that Peter had a mother-in-law and he was married? The first called so, first pope? Just thought I'd throw that out there. Sorry. If any of you are Catholic, that's a joke. Um, <clears throat> just disregard that. Uh, so I don't think that's what Matthew's getting at, that Peter had a mother-in-law. Uh, sorry, Andy, I know you grew up Catholic. Um, but anyways... Uh, is it to show that there's no malady too small for Jesus, even a fever? I don't think that's what he's getting at. Is it to show that when women get healed, that it's then their duty to stay at home and serve men like this woman did? Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Don't shank me afterwards. Uh, I highly doubt that that's what Matthew's getting at either. Was it to show that 
it's his own initiative and, and, and his own doing that he can help whomever and whenever he pleases? Maybe. Was it to show the Jews that despite his tough words towards them in the previous portrait, that he's going to have compassion, he hasn't forsaken his chosen people by helping out a Jewish woman? Possibly. Or was it to show what I think it was to show, the main reason that he's come to gather a group of cultural outcasts, a leper, a Gentile, and a woman, and to restore them. And not only to restore them, but to empower them to live out the gospel. A woman, you might be thinking, this is 2019, women are not outcasts. You would be right. But in this time period, a woman was a second-class citizen. Okay? In the Jewish synagogue, they were actually placed behind screens and to the back, kind of like in a modern-day Muslim mosque. Um, and part of, <laughs> this is pretty bad, part of one of the uh, benedictions that a devout Jewish man would pray regularly was, thank you, God, that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. That's pretty bad, man. That's, <laughs> that's pretty bad. Um, and so, do you see what's happening here? With this woman and these other two portraits, Jesus' first three miracles in the book of Matthew that are recorded are all dealing with three groups of religious outcasts. Jesus is letting outsiders in. That's what Matthew is screaming. When When Christ proclaimed, it is finished and died on the cross, do you remember what happened in the temple? The veil was torn in two. Dan, can you throw that temple illustration up there? Okay, let me just walk you through the temple real quick. So up here at the top, you have the holy place. Well, behind the holy place there is kind of a, bro- a two-part deal. And the back part of that, that would, that's the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, only the high priest could go in there. And then the next, in front of that, you had the holy place. And that was for the priest. And then you had the court of, uh, it says the court of Israel. Oh, the court of Israel. That's for the, uh, the Jewish men to go. So Jewish men could go there. Um, and then you had the court of women, which is for the, uh, the, Jew- the Jewish women could go there. And then you had the court of Gentiles, which were Gentiles who con- converted to Judaism. That's where they could go. And then you had the outer wall, this portico, if you see it in the top left. That kept all the outsiders from coming in and worshiping. And with these three portraits and these three miracles, the, court of, the wall of the court of women is demolished. And then beyond that, the the wall of the court of Gentiles is flattened. And beyond that, the walls of the temple, the porticos itself, are destroyed. Do you see the magnitude? And even the lepers of the world can come in and worship, is what Jesus is saying. And through Jesus, the gates of the kingdom are open wide to all who would believe and bow their knee to His Lordship and get up and serve Him. It's grace, and grace does not leave us the same. Notice what he says about Peter's mother-in-law. Touched her hand and the fever left her and she sat there and, and watched Netflix for the rest of her life. No, it doesn't say that. She rose and began to serve him and to live out the gospel. Which leads us to our final point. Grace has a name and his name is Jesus. Verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This 
church is the crux of this whole section. It's on this verse that all these portraits hang. It's on this verse that all these miracles hinge. It's these portraits of grace are portraits of power of the living God to come and identify and bear in his body on the cross all of our disease, all of our illnesses, and all the nastiness of our sin. And in 1 Peter 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 24, it says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And the reality is that these portraits, in, in each one of these portraits, we all, every single person in this room, bear marks of the stroke of the brush in one way or another outside of Christ. So lest you forgot, let me remind you who we are in these portraits outside of Jesus. We are the leprous man. Sin is leprosy of the heart. It only affects our vertical disposition before God, causing a great chasm between us that we can't get to Him. But it also causes relational, horizontal strife between us. It leaves us broken, shattered, and tainted, leaving us to cry out, unclean, unclean, and banished from the presence of God. We are the Gentile outsider. We are not part of the people of God. We are naturally not, we don't sit in a a spiritual neutral. We are in a hell-bent reverse, opposing God, opposing His ways, running from Him, not sitting there neutral. Jeremiah says our hearts are deceitful. Romans chapter 3 verses 1 through 10 talks about the nastiness of our hearts, man, and our natural disposition. We're, on the, we're of the wrong race. We follow after our first father, Adam, and his sin. We're on the wrong team. We're not a part of the family. We are the culturally rejected woman. We're riddled with sickness, not only physical sickness with our bodies slowly decaying and dying, but spiritual sickness treading on the road to ultimate death and separation from God for all eternity. And left to ourselves in our own devices, we look out for number one, and we establish our own kingdom here on earth for whatever 60, 70 years if we get that. But Jesus, but Jesus, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So what's the good news for someone with a leprous heart? Christ becomes our leprosy on the cross and our disease is placed on him. And our separation is placed on him. And as John 6.37 says, it becomes all too real for us. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whomever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's good. And the once broken, shattered, and tainted, left to cry, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, are restored, made whole, washed clean, and left to cry like this famous song goes, I was once blind, but now I can see. What's the good news for the Gentile outsider? Christ adopts us into the family of God. He takes our oppressive heart of stone that wars against him and wants to do with him. And he replaces it with a heart of flesh that loves him and delights in walking in his statutes and ways like Ezekiel 36, 26 talks about. It makes Galatians 3, 28 all too real for us. It says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus, which then pushes us farther into Galatians 4, verses 6 through 7 that say, but because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then a heir through This is big. He makes us a part of the family. 
What's the good news for the culturally rejected woman in Christ? We are restored physically in future glory. But not only that, we are, we are restored spiritually both through our justification and our sanctification. So not only are we restored and made right with God positionally, where, where He can look at us one day and say, Well done, my good and faithful servant, because the work of Christ has been placed on us. But he, also, He sanctifies us and allows us and equips us, catch this church, equips us to play a part in His grand story of redemption. He sanctifies us and molds us into the image of His Son by His grace. And yes, it hurts sometimes, man. But by God's grace, we no longer live for our kingdom and our glory, but for Christ and His. And so then, no longer are we solo in our, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and in our communities. Looking out for us, we're looking out for others. And we're little gospel lights showing the kingdom of God that is to come. And Galatians 2.20 becomes our mantra. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Grace has a name, and his name is Jesus. So on the cross, Christ bears our public shame, and he saves us from our sin and its consequences. Did you catch that? We, 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 always, we always get the first part right. Christ bears the public shame and pain and saves us from our sin. But we don't usually grasp the second part. And its consequences. What does that mean? Jesus didn't just save you from the wrath of God that is due to sin, but from all the consequences of sin. Yes, the ultimate consequence of sin is separation from God. But we live in a fallen world, we live in a broken world, we live in a corrupt world, and we live in a sick and dying world longing for restorations. Romans chapter 8 verse 22 says, creation, whole creation groans and labors in pain. And so not only was our sin laid on Jesus, but so were all of our illnesses. God put diabetes on him. God put heart disease on him. God put leprosy on Jesus. God put cancer on Jesus. God put every disease that has ever plagued and been painful to the human race on Christ on the cross. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, as Isaiah 53 says. And it wasn't just all of our sin that was removed, but all of its consequences. Well, you might be thinking, playing devil's advocate, well, Tyler, if that's true, then why does so-and-so have cancer? Why did I lose my loved one to heart disease? Why is Children's Hospital in Birmingham full of little bodies riddled with diseases? I would say it's the same reason that you and I still sin. The work of redemption is not yet complete, but there is coming a day when God will finish that great work and sin will be eradicated. The enemy will be ultimately crushed. And therefore, all consequences of sin will vanish with it. So Piper's getting mobile walking around, holding on to the couch, starting to walk. She's getting way too big, way too fast. But anyways, with walking and mobility comes face plants and head knocks on our hardwood floors at home. And so every time that happens, she slams her face, she pauses for a second, and you know, a parent's, you're probably like, it's okay, it's okay, you didn't, nothing happened. But she pauses for a second, and then her little eyes start, little big old brown eyes start to well up with tears. Little lip starts quivering. I start quivering and crying a little bit. Um, and then the tears start flowing and then the screams follow. And nothing can resolve that baby girl until her mama walks over there and picks her up. And she can burrow her little face in her chest and her mom comfort her and wipe away her tears. 
church, can I remind you of a day that is to come? Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4 says this, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and, he, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. In church, God promises a day for believers that he's going to come, and he's going to scoop us up, and we can burrow our face in our dad's chest. He's going to, he, then he himself will wipe away the tears from our eyes and comfort us and remind his child it's all over. It's all why? Because of Jesus' work on our behalf in the kingdom of God, there's no more need for tears because there's no more pain, there's no more disease, and there's no more death, and there's no more chaos. So what does, it, what does this mean for us today, practically, as, as we walk out of here? Grace is a pretty trendy Christian word. You can find it on bumper stickers or in life, oh well, can't find it in Lifeway, RIP. Um, <clears throat> anyways, you can find it on t-shirts and stickers. Um, I would argue it's abused, it's an abused word, it's misused probably, but what does it mean? Grace simply means unmerited favor, that's what it means. And for broken people like each one of us, and each one of these portraits represent, Jesus is grace manifested. Jesus is a picture of grace. He is grace so you go back, if you go back and you look at every one of those points up here and you replace grace with the word, with the name Jesus, you'll see what I'm talking about. Jesus reaches out and restores the deplorable even when the cost is high. Cost him everything. Jesus accepts man not based upon his ethnicity or his accolades, but by the object of his faith. Jesus doesn't leave you unchanged. So all three of these portraits that we've looked at this morning show people in their destitute helplessness. They all three, if you go back and look, all three unashamedly seek help because they know they're sick. And there's only one person who can cure them, namely Christ himself. And as believers, we are called to pick up our cross and follow Christ. That is our call. So believer, what does this mean for you? I believe if we're to reach out to the one whose society says is gross and has nothing to do with, even if it costs us our image or more. Who's that in your life? Who's the coworker that's been married 14 different times with kids with each one of them that everybody likes to talk about and poke jokes at? Who's the self-righteous gossiping jerk that nobody wants to be friends with? Who is that? Each one of you, myself included, has a person like that. Who is it? We're called to open up our lives to people that don't look like us or might not necessarily think like us and live our lives with gospel intentionality. Does this mean that if a person is living in sin that we should go join them and participate in it? No. But I do believe it causes us to dumpster dive into the mess of their life and walk with them through it, getting warts and all on us and pointing them to their ultimate hope. So Jesus got tagged with the name friend of sinners. 
How that happened, I went there, I don't quite know. He didn't get it by hanging out at Pharisee festivals, though. I can tell you that. And as believers, we're not redeemed to sit idly by and leave ministry to the professionals or whatever crap that is. We're all, if you're a born-again believer in this room, you are a minister. And the Lord loves to display his power through willing, weak vessels. Go read about that in 2 Corinthians. So, unbeliever, what does this cause us? What does that cause you to? If you confess your sin and you turn from it by God's grace, and you rest in His finished work on your behalf, His sinless life, that to the law, flawless. He didn't fall. He never messed up. Not only did He stop there, but but if you submit to His sinless life and His sacrificial death where He was crushed for your mess-ups and your screw-ups and your nastiness, and He bore your sin, became your sin, and you rest in His glorious resurrection Three days later, he defeated gravity, he defeated sin, he defeated death, and gave us hope, rising from the grave. And not only that, but his ascension, where now he rules and reigns as Lord and King, and one day will come and restore his kingdom that we talked about and usher in this new kingdom that we just talked about in Revelation 21. That's coming, church. If you would do that and submit your life to Him as Lord, if you come to Him in that manner, the promise of sonship is the same for you as it was to the leprous man. Jesus, will I believe you can heal me. Will you? I will be clean. Ben, you can come on back up. So to wrap this up this morning, <clears throat> I've heard on more than one occasion from different people over the years, I really wish I could see Jesus do and work miracles like he does in the Gospels. Like, it would totally change my faith, Tyler, if I could see Jesus work miracles like he does here that we just looked at. It would radically transform me. I say, usually respond with two things. One is, well, he still does. Just because you haven't physically seen him heal somebody doesn't mean that he's not healing people. I mean, that's just craziness. But number two, and even which is even more important, is... The reality, if you're sitting in this room this morning and the Lord has taken the King of Kings, the sustainer of the universe, has taken your hell-bent, stank-dead, yeah, the West Circle's coming out me today, stank-dead with a heart, stank with an A, nastiness heart, to vibrant life and love for Him and your neighbor, that is the single greatest miracle we can see in our time. Dead hearts to vibrant life and love for him. That, my friends, is a pretty magnificent miracle. Mike Iaconelli says this. The greatest enemy of Christianity may be people who say they believe in Jesus, but who are no longer astonished or amazed. Is that you, church? The greatest enemy of Christianity may be people who say they believe in Jesus, but who, no lo- but who are no longer astonished or amazed. So, believer, that brings us to the table this morning. I would invite you to come and to take the bread, take the cup, eat and drink, and be reminded of the body that had to be crushed so that you could be made clean, that you could be brought into the family, and that you could be restored. And the blood that was poured out to make that possible. And be astonished and be amazed 
so that you can eat and drink and remember, but not only remember, but walk out of this room and go and live and be a gospel light, displaying these pictures of grace to a dying, longing world needing restoration. An unbeliever. Today might just be the day that the single greatest miracle that we can see could take place. So if the Lord is working in your heart, if he's prodding at your heart, don't fight it, man. He's going to get you sooner or later. I'm a good reformed guy. That's what I believe. So don't fight it, man. Bow your knee to his lordship, man. Rest in his grace. Today could be the day of salvation. Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you for a large chunk of text. Thank you for looking at nasty lepers. Thank you for looking at Gentile dogs. Thank you for looking at rejected cultural outcasts. Like each and every one of us in this room. And for saying, I want them. They are mine. Thank you for drawing us. Lord, I pray if there's an unbeliever in this room that you would draw them this morning. Lord, the power of your Spirit make it unbearable for them. Would you draw them in? May they taste and see that you are good. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.